Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Jewish's podcast. Today we are doing a very long-awaited episode. My patrons have heard the trials and tribulations of writing this one, which for some reason eluded me. It simply eluded me. I knew from the very beginning that I was going to cover the Gollum. It's actually a blog post that I've been meaning to write as well for nearly two years. And it simply eluded me as I was writing it. It felt like something was missing. Even as I added more and more sections, I just felt like something wasn't right. But we're finally doing it. I feel like I've gone to a place where I'm covering enough information that it's worthy of being shared. Of course, this is not going to be entirely comprehensive. There are books filled to the brim with information on the Gollum, and so I wanna make it clear that this is not supposed to be entirely comprehensive. This is supposed to be, like most of the things I do, a basic overview, uh, where you learn the basics, you learn some fun folk stories, and you hear some of the discussions that are held around them. Now, Before we get into it, we have to do some housekeeping. Housekeeping number one is that this podcast is going to mention things like incest, sexual assault, misogyny, discussions about ableism, and specifically ableism regarding to nonverbal people. Um, Those are discussions that have to be held, but I do want to provide an apt warning that those are things that will be mentioned. I try not to go into too much detail as I don't like having to say it and you don't want to have to hear a lot of it but some of it absolutely cannot be avoided. There's also discussions of misogyny uh, and sexism and some history of those things within Judaism as well. As a secondary housekeeping thing, uh, we're going to be discussing certain methodologies of creating golems. None of these are complete. I have not listed a complete way of doing it, nor would it be easy for someone to replicate without complex, in-depth study, but it's important that we state outright that the creation of golems is purely and uniquely Jewish, meaning it is part of a closed practice. If you are not Jewish, this is not something you should even consider attempting. Understanding that you are a guest in listening and learning about Judaism and our history, folklore, and beliefs means that you understand that you are not to go and recreate them. There is also an important note that the part of Jewish writing on this topic specifically discusses how Gentiles would, non-Jews, would be unable to complete the creation of a golem as it is a uniquely Jewish practice. So as you listen, please be mindful of that. I think that that is all of the housekeeping for today. So we can jump right into the beginning. What is a golem? 
The simple definition is that a golem is an anthropoid automaton, a creature made of clay, sometimes stone, brought to life using Jewish magic or the sacred names of God. According to famed scholar Gershom Shalom, the golem is a creature, particularly a human being, made in an artificial way by the virtue of a magic art through the use of holy names. The plural for golem in English is golem or golems, while in Hebrew it is glamim. And we start, as we usually do, with etymology. In Psalm 139.16, we see the word golmi used, believed to mean my golem. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it means my light form, raw or raw material connoting the unfinished human being before God's eyes. From Golmi, we move up to Gollum. However, according to Etymology Online, a Gollum is, in their definition, an artificial man, automaton, and that's from 1897. And it comes from the Hebrew Gollum, meaning shapeless mass or embryo, and that is supposedly derived from the word Galam. He wrapped up and folded. I found this particularly interesting as I couldn't find the linguistic pathway of Galam to Gollum uh, almost anywhere else. It was interesting and I didn't go into it too far, but if you happen to have another citation for that, I would be very interested in hearing it. Now, as we're on the topic of linguistics, one of the things I kept coming across in my research into the Gollum was references towards the phrase abracadabra. Most of us have heard, or in my case perpetuated, the idea that the word abracadabra comes from the Aramaic avracadavra, meaning I create as I speak. While this is not strictly untrue, the etymological history is a bit more complicated than that. This is one theory, which makes it neither true nor false, but simply a theory. It would appear that the first mention of the word abracadabra specifically appears in 2nd century AD in a book called Liber Medicinalis, also sometimes known as De Medicina Precepta Soluberima, by a man named Serenus Simonicus. There's many languages I feel comfortable reading. Latin, not one of them. My apologies. He used the word to create an amulet against malaria, but here is the thing. The way the amulet is made is one that exists heavily within Judaism. The methodology of writing a word over and over, removing one letter at a time until there is just one left, is an incredibly Jewish method of creating amulets and has been documented in a number of Jewish grimoires and texts throughout the centuries. So while we do not necessarily know uh, whether or not abracadabra does stem from Judaism. The first mention of it is in a very Jewish manner, though done by a non-Jew. And it continually comes up when you see, when you look into golems, even though they don't appear to be directly related. And so I thought it would be an interesting tangent to go down before we move back to the topic at hand. What is the purpose of the golem? One thing that can be agreed upon by people when discussing glamim is that they are most often created to protect Jews and our communities. They are usually created as a means of bringing divinity to earth to save us from persecution and oppression as we live in lands where we are foreigners. I always find it interesting how many Jews feel a specific pull and draw towards them, even if they're not familiar with the stories or function of the golem. Now, we will discuss one other purpose at the very end of this podcast. 
So if that is the supposed common purpose, what is the history? The history of the golem is a long one. There are theories that are it is alluded to in scripture, as we discussed earlier, for etymology, but the specific basis of golems comes from the mystical text, the Sefer Yetzirah. As a quick overview, the Sefer Yetzirah is an influential, influential book of Masseh Bereshit mystical tradition and was written probably between the 3rd and 6th centuries. It is also known as the Book of Creation or the Book of Formation. The book is traditionally believed to have been written by Avraham, the patriarch of Judaism. Within its steps, the Sefer Yetzirah consists of commentary and teaches upon mystical concepts, particularly the ability to create lesser life forms using the sacred names of God. And that is where the Golem stems from. We see that in certain commentaries, there are claims that historical Jewish figures predating the believed writing of the Sefer Yetzirah that they also created golems. For example, two very prominent examples are Avraham, again the patriarch, and Jeremiah, the prophet. Is it also believed that in the medieval ages, a man named Solomon ibn Gaberol created a maidservant for himself, which is various named various times in scholarly discussions of the golem. Perhaps the most famous story of the golem uh, is the story of the Golem of Prague and has many, many variations and iterations. Wherever you heard it first, there are a few staples. I will be reading the rendition published by the Atlanta Jewish Times, which is written by Alan H. Lippis and was published in 2020. I will start reading now. A famous story about the Golem deals with blood libels. Back then, Christian priests, especially the priest Tadeus, claimed that Jews secretly killed Christian children and used their blood for their Passover matzot. After Tadeus's sermons, the Christian townspeople would pour out of the church, seething with hatred for the Jews. The Maharal, in desperation to save the Jews from slaughter, prayed for guidance. He received an answer at night in a vision. He was given 10 Hebrew letters, signifying words meaning, you will create a golem, a thing of clay, and destroy the wicked. The image of the mythical golem of Prague was not a monster, but a gentle soul that helped protect Jews of Prague. The Maharal and two friends went to the Moldova River and began to shape the soft clay. They created a figure that resembled a man. The first friend circled the golem seven times while reciting certain holy letter combinations. The golem began to glow. The second friend did the same thing, and the wa- glow was replaced by a watery vapor. Then the Maharal also circled the golem seven times, and the three of them cried out, and God blew the breath of life into his nostrils. The golem's eyes then opened. The men discovered that the golem had great strength and also the ability to disappear. The Maharal told the golem, We created you with God's help to protect the Jews against our enemies. You must obey my orders in everything. The golem could see and hear, but was mute. He nodded his head in agreement. The golem was not a monster, but rather a gentle soul that had no independent thought, but was morally upright. He did exactly what he was told until he was told to stop by the Maharal. When asked to bring water to the kitchen, he continued to bring water until the kitchen flooded and was then told to stop. When he was told to catch fish, he fished all day, and when there were too many fish, he dumped the entire basket of them back into the lake. One tale of the golem dealt with a Jewish girl named Miriam, who went to Father Tedios to become a Christian. As Pesach approached, Miriam packed her bags and raced out of her house. 
At the same time, a Christian girl who worked for Miriam's family quit and went missing. She had returned to her own village, jobless. With that fact in mind, and having Miriam under his control, Tadeos forced Miriam to concoct a story that the Mahal and his friends had killed the missing girl for her blood, and they had a bottle of blood to make matzah. In addition, Miriam said that one of the men told her father that the girl was missing would be replaced in a few days. The next day, the Mahal, a friend, and the Gollum were arrested. Before the trial began, the Mahal, who was told in advance about Miriam's fabrication, found a mute man in Prague who matched the golem's figure, sedated him, and put him in the golem's bed, so it looked like he was the golem. The Mahal then told the real golem to go to the girl's village with a letter that said she would have her job back with a raise if she would return to Prague. With the golem's special powers, the girl, missing girl returned with him in the middle of the trial. The Mahal and his friends were then declared innocent, and Miriam was sentenced six years in prison for perjury, and Tadeus was discredited. Most important, the Golem performed many acts of brute strength to defend the Jews. After many other incidents involving the Golem, and once the blood libel battle was over, the Maharal no longer relied on the Golem. With his two friends, they followed the same process used to create the Golem, but in reverse. They wrapped the Golem in a talit and hid him in the attic of the Maharal's synagogue, available to return when needed. No one was told where the Golem had gone. Only a few in Prague knew the truth, and many believed that the secret incantation to bring him back could only be enacted by the Maharal. Now, if you haven't listened to my episode on blood libel, I highly recommend you do. We go into depth of understanding of the history and the impact here. But here you can see how anti-Semitism and the hatred of Jews has been a defining factor in parts of Jewish myth and parts of Jewish beliefs and understandings. There is another story that is presented in the book, The Gollum Redux, From Prague to Post-Holocaust Fiction by Elizabeth uh, R. Ray, and I'll read from that now. The Jews in 16th century Prague's Jewish quarter were continually under threat from members of the surrounding non-Jewish community, who used many pretexts, would invade the ghetto and wreak havoc. Often the pretext was that of blood libel, the accusation that Jews stole, had stolen and killed a Christian baby to use its blood to make matzah for the Passover Seder. After repeated depredations, according to legend, Rabbi Yudha Luva, a real historical figure and the high wise rabbi of Prague, directed a dream question to God, asking for help to stop the violence. God instructs Rabbi Luva to go to, with two trusted assistants to the back of the Voltava River that bisects Prague. In the dark of night, they are to use the mud of the riverbank to fashion a humanoid figure, then perform a secret ritual to infuse the figure with life. Rabbi names the figure Yosef, or Yosele, and provides him with clothing. Rabbi Luva explains to the figure, now a golem and usually mute, that he will be a servant to the rabbi and do his bidding under all circumstances. In the tales that follow his creation, the golem performs many feats of rescue and strength. Sometimes he patrols the streets of Prague at night. At other times, he provides evidence regarding a Jew who has been arrested on blood libel charges so that the accused is exonerated. Eventually, either because the golem becomes destructive or because his heroic qualities are deemed no longer necessary, Rabbi Luther determines to withdraw his life, often in the attic of the Schule, uh, the Old New Synagogue, the oldest operating synagogue in Europe. With his two assistants, Rabbi Luther reverses the ritual with which he created the golem, and life seeps out of him. In most versions, Rabbi Luve then covers the inert clay figure with an old talit, or pages from the discarded Torah scrolls, and forbids anyone to enter the synagogue attic thereafter. 
The golem has gone through long periods of uh, quiescence in his history and has been brought back to life, almost Rabbi Lubis style, at certain moments, a key aspect of Jewish mysticism in the early 1800s. So that's a secondary discussion, uh, a secondary account of the story. As you can see, like I said, there are usually a couple key staples uh, with details varying by who's telling it and which rec uh, recollection or recounting it is. So let's talk about the methodologies of creating a golem. There is more one. <laughs> there is more than one way to make a golem, which is now my new favorite saying. More than one way to skin a cat? No, there's more than one way to make a golem. Generally, a golem is made out of clay. There are some discussions that I've seen where the golem has a framework of wood or metal, but the most common is clay, and then stones may be used for eyes, etc. When made of clay, they are formed like Adam was, from dust as part of the creation ritual. Then the divine names of God are used to bring it to life. The methodologies of doing so this include writing down the divine names on the skin of the golem, and skin is in quotations, or on a scroll that is placed within the bodily, normally the mouth of the golem. One very common belief is to inscribe it with the word emet, or truth, and is inscribe that on the forehead of the golem in conjunction with other divine names used in the ritual of creation. To quote from the Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism by Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis, here is one methodology of creation. Whoever studies Yasefer Yetzirah has to purify himself, don white robes. It is forbidden to study alone, but only in twos and threes, as, is, as it is written. And the beings they made in Haran, and as it is written, two are better than one. It is required that he take virgin soil from a place in the mountains where none has plowed. Then he shall knead the soil with living water and make a body and begin to permutate the Aleph Bet of 221 gates, each limb separately, each limb with the corresponding letter mentioned in Sefer Yatirah. And the Aleph Bet shall be permutated first, and afterward he shall permutate with the vowel, and always the letter of the divine name with them, and then all the Aleph Bet. Afterwards, all the letters with each of the vowels as with the Aleph, Afterward, the permutation of Aleph with a letter from the divine name plus vowels, Aleph Yod, and similarly in its entirety. Afterward, he shall appoint Bet and likewise Gimel and each limb with the letter designated to it. He shall do this when he is pure. These are the 21, 221 gates. Another method also requires a circle dance to be performed around the inert form of the creature. This procedure is meant to mimic the Midrashic descriptions of how God created an Adam. Now, it is also mentioned in the writings of Sephardic Kabbalist Avraham Abulafia that the Golem creation process includes creating 24 magical or purposeful circles as well. Uh, there are a number of mentions to magic circles within Judaism and the importance of circles in Jewish ritual, and I am working on a little piece of writing on that as well. So how do you get rid of a Golem, right? Because we do see that you do have to get rid of them. Like we see in some of these stories, the golem does need to eventually be laid to rest, and the way you built the golem defines how you will destroy it as far as I've come to understand it. For those who carve a met into its forehead, erasing the letter Aleph would make the word met, meaning death, thereby erasing the efficacy of the original spell and commanding the creature to die. Others require that you take out the scroll if you put a piece of paper or a scroll within the golem, or some combination of both. Others recommend saying the divine names in reverse or performing an entire ritual, but reversed. So why would you destroy a golem? Most stories end with a golem either serving its purpose and therefore being allowed to lay peacefully, 
or the golem becoming violent after serving its purpose and they turn against their creator. Essentially, the end conclusion is that when the golem is no longer needed, it's not wise to keep it around. Now, the next section, unfortunately, is a bit muddled in regards to topic. I try and keep the sections of my podcasts uh, clean and cohesive and under their own titles, but this next part is complicated and therefore muddled around. So we're going to be talking about golems, gender, sex, sexuality, and the innate humanness, or lack thereof, of the golem. As we've already heard, there is historical accounts of the creation of golems that are created to be considered females and stories of golems who fall within the realm of womanhood, but there is a larger conversation. In Golem by Moshe Adel, we learn of some fairly outdated, frustratingly misogynistic viewpoints. To quote, in Hebrew, on the other hand, an unmarried woman was considered to be an imperfect being. Like an unmarried man, she was referred to in classical texts as a golem. This designation implies her being an imperfect, hylic entity, prior to her becoming a vessel, Kelly, for her husband, so that she will attain her essential perfection as woman. In light of our previous explanations of the meaning of the golem, it seems that in this case, as well as the term, the term stands for a human body that did not receive its ultimate perfection. Moreover, the relationship between the woman conceived of as a golem and the process of her becoming a vessel, namely her reaching her, quote, natural goal, is reminiscent of other Talmudic discussions, where golem stands for the unfinished form of a certain vessel, which becomes that vessel when it is given the final touch. The penetration of the needle is paralleled by the Talmudic view of the husband as the maker of his spouse. This is frustrating. I'm frequently asked about misogyny when I'm writing and reading and studying Judaism. And the truth is, it's disgusting. And it's something that I have to work with quite frequently. You can be studying something innocuous, some random part of history, and then there is something extremely misogynistic being said and referenced. And these things have to be teased apart and thought of critically as I move forward. How did the comparison of human beings to golems impact people's actual belief about human beings? The belief that we are inherently imperfect and must need a man to fix us or complete us or the husband being the maker of his spouse. Those are things for us to grapple with on a personal level and on a public community level. The concept of golems is not human halachically, in accordance with Jewish law, has also been greatly discussed. Something that is important to note is that the idea that uh, halacha, Jewish law, is many times interpreted as only pertaining to natural-born creatures. There is a story that on a specific day of the week, the tribes of Israel would be able to use the divine names of God to create calves that were not born of parents, but merely brought into the world through, and for lack of a better word here, magic. These magically created animals were therefore rendered as existing outside of the laws of kashrut and, or, and kosher slaughter. Specifically, you could eat these animals however you wanted and it wouldn't matter, including the normally extremely forbidden act of eating the animal before it was dead. 
So because it was not a natural-born creature, it was exempt from Jewish law. This translates to the interpretation from many scholars that Gollum are also exempt from these laws. Now, in the story of the brothers eating of the calves that were created unnaturally, there is also a story of the brothers walking, let's just walking, with the same woman. To quote, According to the halachic ruling, it is forbidden for close relatives, brothers, fathers, and sons to have intercourse with the same female. This interdiction was allegedly transgressed by the brothers who walked, a euphemism for having intercourse, with the same woman. However, provided as not a human being, but merely an artificially created entity, the halachic interdiction does not hold in such a case. Implicitly, the assumption of the source quoted by Horwitz, or of Horwitz himself, is that the golem cannot be considered a human being from a halachic point of view. On the basis of this discussion of Horowitz, the female golem was denied any human quality in a detailed halachic treatment of, our, of Rabbi Zevi Hirsch of Munkax. So this story about people having sex with the golem, the problem is not intercourse or sex itself, but the fact that it would be a prohibition and regarding breaking the laws of incest. However, in another version of the tale, there are multiple golems being created, so it is entirely a non-issue. Now, many rabbis of old stated that golems could not be created with sexual desire, nor should they be, as sexual desire could cause harm if they were to choose to act on it. But this isn't just a discussion about sex, right? Because there are many. There are discussions by modern rabbis talking about the ethics of having intercourse with a golem in regards to can they consent? Do they understand consent? Are they capable of knowing what consent is? Are they like inanimate uh, objects, like say a robot, or do they count as living, breathing things? And not human, but still living, breathing. So you may have seen, right, tweets saying that you could include a golem in a minion, but that is not the consensus uh, among everyone. Like all good Jewish topics, it is heavily debated. Rabbi Isaac Ben Samson Katz argues that golems do not fall under the verse that states, to quote, I shall be sanctified amidst the sons of Israel, because they have no true parents and are not born of humans, just as the calves we discussed earlier are not born of other cows and have no parents. We see this as different from women who are included many times under the rule of I shall be sanctified amidst the sons of Israel. Jewish women are still required to follow Jewish law. Golems, however, are not and are therefore not included under uh, sanctified amidst the sons of Israel. To quote from Rabbi Michael Leo Samuel's 2012 article entitled, May a Golem Count Towards a Minion? Rabbi Tzvi Ashkenazi, 1660-1718, writes in a responsa how his grandfather, Rabbi Elijah of Chaim, once made a golem in his garage. In this remarkable responsa, he asks whether one can, one, can a golem count as one of the ten who make a minion or quorum for prayer? And two, if someone killed such an entity, would it be considered murder? Each of these questions revolves around one basic question. Could such a creature possess a human soul? If the golem can be counted, does that mean that a golem may be considered a Jew, or does he have a Gentile status? On the other hand, it is logical to say that the golem should be no worse than an adopted child who is considered Jewish. The rabbi wondered, should it occur to you that a golem would have been counted for a minion, 
or for that matter, any occasion requiring a minion? Why would Rabbi Zeira deliberately destroy it? It could only mean that the golem is not considered a person, for otherwise Rava would have certainly used him for a minion. I can hear him say, Yo, golem, we need you for a minion. The basic underlying logic here is that we can count whether or not the golem consists of a human based on the laws of... Oh, I dropped my phone. My apologies. Based on the laws of murder, would it be murder to kill a golem? And we see that no, it isn't. And that precludes it from being included in any sort of minion because on that basic idea, it does not fall within the realm of humanity. Anyone who is a human forbidden to murder. So this answer here says, no, they're not counted in a minion because there is no innate humanness uh, despite being brought to life. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is why can't it be counted for a minion? And here's where we discuss part of the ableism here. Um, I want to make note that these discussions regarding ableism are heavy and we're looking at very old texts that contain extremely outdated damaging beliefs that need to be addressed. We know in this day and age, nonverbal communication is just as valid as verbal communication. Someone's intellectual capabilities does not change their innate value as a human being, nor does it change them from being a human being. But this is something that the rabbis go discuss going back to the early 13th century. The reason that rabbis, many rabbis give regarding golems is that they are unable to speak and that this inability comes from a cognitive inability. There is a, to go back to the 13th century, there is a unanimous opinion that the operator and creator of a golem is unable to bestow the function, the faculty of rationality to their golems. Golems simply cannot be made by their masters to have any level of rationality. This rationality and intellect, however, is tied to the power of speech by many early scholars and Kabbalists. To quote Rabbi Pinchas Eliyahu wrote, as long as the power of the intellect does not illuminate the infant, he is mute, being unable to speak. And if a man will create a creature, a golem, by the divine names and the holy letters mentioned in Sefer that golem will have a figure with the appearance of a man, shaped out of a matters, having even a soul with all the powers and senses, but without the power of speech. Since he has no reason and his soul lacks the power of intellection, for man is unable to infuse an intellective soul and the power of pro- creation, but God alone, as we have explained in the book Beit HaYoser, which I have composed on Sefer Yatzirah. And this is perceived by Rabbi Zera concerning that the man, that he is a golem, and it shall be said in Sanhedrin, Rava created a man. So these are some of the discussions that are being had regarding the inherent nature of the golem and how the creation of an artificial being uh, doesn't preclude uh, the creation of an artificial being creates complicated topics uh, regarding intellect, the qualities of humanity and innate humanness, and how we separate ourselves from it. And this is a modern discussion as well. I read a number of articles that discuss golems 
directly in uh, in opposition to things like AI and how we would separate AI from golems and from humanity going forward. Um, there are a number of interesting articles on the topic. I won't go too heavily into robots, but this is a modern discussion as well as an ancient one. Now to address the question that I will most certainly get, because it is the question that I was bombarded with after posting my Jewish Dragons and Mermaids episode, are golems kosher to eat? And the answer is it's made of clay or rocks. So take from that what you will. But the real question, in my opinion, is can you kosher a golem and make it kosher to eat off or cook with? And the answer is I think so. I'm 90% sure. I'm pretty sure. Here's the thing. Why would you do it? Could not tell you. Why would you do that? Would you do it before bringing it to life? You make the golem, you make the physical form, then you kosher it. Um, and you can kosher clay. There is discussions about how to do it. To quote from kosher.com, clay is categorized as clay cheres, earthenware. The Gemara Pesachim 30b writes that the earthenware utensils cannot be koshered with hagalah by immersing in boiling water, since boiling water alone will not completely purge the absorbed flavor that is embedded inside the cheres. The Baal Ha'itur, 12th century, permitted koshering cheres, provided that it has not been used for 24 hours, by performing hagalah three times, in theory, separate pots of boiling water. Most Rishonim did not agree with Baal Ha'itur, and the Shulchan Aruch does not accept this ruling. However, the concept is not completely rejected. For example, the Shulchan Aruch relies on the Baal Ha'itur cheres pot that has been used to uh, cook bishul uh, akum. It may be kosher with three hagalot since we are dealing with a rabbinic prohibition. So, possibly, right? They're talking about previously absorbed flavors. What if it's never used anything? It's a it's a golem. What if it's not? I'm assuming it's never been used to eat off of. Could you also create, say, a golem with pots for hands? Right? Would did you give this golem a central nervous system? Could they even feel that pain? Why would you do this? Would it be like having a self-cooking stove? These are all questions I have personally asked. And I think it would be fascinating to ask uh, to an actual official rabbinical source. Um, so can you eat uh, a golem? Can you eat clay? And the answer is yes, you actually can. Bentonite clay, there's actually a number of very interesting clay dishes. But whether or not it's kosher to eat, I have not found an answer for I don't think that I think it would be part of, honestly, but I have no clue if I'm totally brutally honest with you. To move on something to something I do have a clue with is the golem in popular media. And boy, do we have some things to get in there. The golem is one of the most widely referenced Jewish creatures in non-Jewish media. There are many mentions, of course, so we are only going to discuss a few including the downfalls and victories of the portrayals in each one. We do have to remember that some of these do have Jews working behind the scenes, while others very obviously do not. Um, if I don't mention your favorite representation of a golem, please forgive me. Uh, feel free to comment it on my Instagram and let me know because I would love to hear it. I know that I'm always so excited, especially when I was younger, to show off parts of my own culture and seeing parts of Judaism uh, and Jewish folklore on the big screen or in books or whatever media was so excited to me. The most people usually got, uh, at least what I grew up with, was Bible stories here or there, and they were almost always done through a very Christian lens, so I was always so excited to see parts of Judaism. Um, and it's interesting to go back and look at it now. The first time I remember seeing a golem in a non-Jewish media was in the book The Alchemist by Irish author Michael Scott. Not to be confused with Michael Scott, the character from the TV show The Office. 
The book is part of the series, The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel, which does actually reference other things from Jewish folklore. They also take from a lot of different cultural, uh, cultural uh, basis. Uh, and very randomly, it also references an ice cream shop in the Californian city of Ojai. Uh, Ojai is just a little bit north of LA. And my family used to go to that ice cream shop, and I can say with a very deep sense of reverence and nostalgia, the best flavor from said ice cream shop is their orange sherbet. Nothing to do with golems. I just love that ice cream shop, and I can't wait for a vegan version of the sherbet. And don't say orange sorbet, because orange sorbet and sherbet taste nothing alike. And it's just not the same. So unfortunately, in this story, the golem is created by the villain. There are a couple of them, and... I noticed it when I first read it, but I forgot about it until I used writing this episode as an excuse to reread it. Looking at it now, I'm a bit disappointed that they, the way it is written is that the Gollum are henchmen that serve only the villain of the story, as far as I remember. They have stones for eyes, and they are lumbering creatures of brute force. They have no free will, and they are referred to as creatures of mud. Uh, When the scroll is plucked from one of the Gollum's mouths, it collapses back into a heap of mud, which... I guess if it's mud, sure, but if it's clay, that's not really how clay functions. Um, At one point, the villain references that he forgot, he didn't put ears on one of his golems, so the golem can't hear, which I thought was an interesting note. But I don't remember if the golems ever reappear in the story, but they kind of make a big entrance right at the very beginning, and I didn't like it. So I hope they, I, I don't remember if they do, but I really hope they didn't. Moving on, there is also mentions of the golem in Pokemon. To quote from Bulbapedia, Gollum is a dual rock-type ground Pokemon introduced in Generation 1. It evolves from Graveler when traded, is a final form of Geodude, and Alola Gollum has a dual-type uh, rock-electric regional form. It evolves from Alolan Graveler when traded, it is the final form of Alolan Geodude. Gollum is a bipedal tortoise-like Pokemon with a spherical body covered by a shell of plated green rocks. Its body is so hard that even dynamite cannot scratch it. Its head protrudes from the center of the shell. The head has a flat snout with two pointed teeth in the lower jaw and red eyes. It has short arms that have three claws and two legs with feet that have four claws in the front and one in the back. The head and limbs are light brown in color. Gollum grows bigger by shedding its skin once a year. The discarded shell immediately hardens when exposed to air, crumbling away and returning to the soil. However, it stops shedding with age and moss grows over its shell. As shown in the Pocket Monsters Cardass trading cards, Gollum's shell is hollow. The anime has shown that Gollum is able to withdraw its head and its limbs into its shell and roll at high speeds. It is dangerous when doing this, as it's unable to see and may crash into or run over anything in its path. To prevent it from rolling into the homes of people downhill, grooves are dug into the side of the mounds to divert the Gollum's rolling course. It is seldom seen in the wild. However, it can be found living in mountainous regions. I thought that was a fascinating little history to dive into. Um, kind of strange that it's a tortoise, right? I, I'm not exactly certain why they went with Gollum, other than it's related to dirt. But, you know, it's fun either way. Now, another very popular depiction of Gollum's is in the game of Minecraft. I won't go too far into depth here, but the golems spawn in Minecraft villages. The villagers have had a long-held discussion surrounding them with the belief that they were created with anti-Semitic tropes in mind. This is largely due to the anti-Semitic nature of the creator of the game. 
The villagers, for context, are traders who trade with precious gems and have extremely large noses, as well as a number of other anti-Semitic tropes. This is not helped when later in the game, golems were added to the game with the sole purpose of protecting the villagers, which only cemented in many people's minds that the villagers were in fact meant to represent Jews. I will admit that I am not necessarily the most versed in this specific topic, so I cannot speak too heavily on it, but what I will say is that the golems aren't created out of clay, or mud as they should be, but they are rather created of, out of iron, which is a confusing way to do it, and it shows a bit of lack of research. Um, there is a There are some pretty good articles on this topic, I am just not well versed enough to articulately hold a conversation regarding it. Now, The Golem and the Ginny is a uh, fantastic fantasy novel written by a Jewish author, which features a golem as one of the protagonists, and this golem happens to be a woman. I read this book last year, and I actually quite enjoyed it. It talks about a number of concepts, humanity, the nature of uh, existence. There's a little romance as part of it. The characters are very likable. I actually really enjoyed the story. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, we have to go into D&D. So D&D uh, Dungeons and Dragons, a role-playing tabletop game, as described by Google, is a fairly is fairly notorious for their butchering of cultural creatures, as well as some pretty nefarious bigotry, including anti-Romani racism, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Asian racism, ableism, and anti-Semitism, just to name a few of their offenses. I was, as someone who does does not engage with D and D quite surprised to find out they have golems. Now, golems in D&D, as far as I could discern, are made of iron, stone, and clay. In D&D, wizards and clerics can bring glamim to life. But we cannot discuss D&D without discussing their failure here. And that is that they have something called flesh golems. To quote D&D Beyond, Com. A flesh golem is a grisly assortment of humanoid body parts stitched and bolted together in a muscle into a muscled brute imbued with a formidable strength. Powerful enchantments protect it, deflecting spells, and all but the most potent weapons. And here's where we see a failure of pretty immense proportions. This problem is that it directly breaks Judaism's laws regarding the dead, including dead bodies. Taking apart and creating a new body by way of stitching it together would be massively disrespectful to dead and would not be done by Jews, which is why it's done in this game by wizards and clerics. These flesh golems get the basics right by saying they can understand their creature creators but don't speak, but that's not really much in the way of rectifying the egregious mistake of creating such a creature in the first place. Um, and it also leads to the discussion of whether or not Frankenstein would be counted as a golem. I would argue that no. In my opinion, the monster of Frankenstein is not a golem. And yes, I know it's Frankenstein's monster and not Frankenstein himself, even though Frankenstein himself was also a monster, right? The reason that I would argue that we know that Frankenstein's monster isn't a golem is that he wasn't brought to life through Jewish ritual using the sacred names of God. And there are people who would argue with me about it, and that's what being Jewish is for. Now to move on to one of my least favorite depictions of golems in media, and that is in, drum rolls please, Supernatural. If you're not familiar with Supernatural, I'm envious. Supernatural was, to put it lightly, a cultural phenomenon that disrespected nearly every culture under the sun. The, follow, the story follows two monster hunting brothers, Sam and Dean Winchester, and their hijinks across the United States, utterly decimating any sort of 
cultural sensitivity or true understanding of the creatures and practices they were trying to depict. Their depictions of golems are just as egregious as most of their other portrayals, and not necessarily because the creature itself was portrayed incorrectly, it was, but the storylines around it as well. For example, reading from the Supernatural Wikipedia on fandom.com, one golem was created under the employ of the Judah Initiative, a group of rabbis fighting a secret rabbi against the Tuz. If you are not familiar with what the Tuz are, they are cult society founded in München, Germany, after World War I. I will not sugarcoat it. They are Volkish occultist Nazis. Uh, Volkish Nazis. While there is no evidence that Hitler himself was part of the Tudor society, they were Nazis nonetheless. Their work in German occultism and Volkish heathenry is foundational in its white supremacy. Supernatural themselves agree and can have the same conclusion. Again, from that same Supernatural Wikipedia, after World War I, the Tuils emerged, uh, emerged and funded the early days of the Nazi party and were themselves Nazis. Uh, the Tuil commandant uh, Eckhart was in Hitler's inner circle and looked to him as a leader as well, and the Tuils eventually came in conflict with the Judah Initiative, again that secret organization of rabbis, which is backed by the men of the letters, who worked to stop the Tuils once and for all. Now, I won't go into much detail regarding the lore of the supernatural interpretation of the Tuil society, but they specifically include Commandant Eckhart, who we'll be discussing in regards to Golems, who his mission was to resurrect the dead. And they specifically mentioned that he was performing experiments in concentration camps during the Holocaust. So we are already seeing this clear means of twisting history here, um, and also misunderstanding here. If the first and only golem in the supernatural universe was created during the time after World War One, to be specific, 1944, that's a clear misunderstanding and lack of understanding of Jewish history running golems. To continue with the quote, golems are typically aggressive and brutal, built for war and destruction. Despite this, they will not kill without order and are capable of understanding what is good, as seen when one acknowledges both Dean and Sam, the protagonist of the show, to be allies after learning they are descended from men of letters. A golem has a bulky physique and a huge build. It is also very heavy, as every step it takes creates an audible thudding sound from where it stood. It is far larger than even tall, full-grown men, men such as Sam Winchester. The golem has a scroll in its mouth where the owner would write his name. Upon doing so, the rabbi would gain complete control of the golem. Over ownership over the golem is passed on by inheritance to the next master, usually a relative of the previous master. But if that person fails to have his or her name written on the scroll that animates the golem, then the golem will remain still somewhat loyal to its new master, though magic can be used to usurp ownership by forcibly taking the scroll from the golem and having the caster write their name instead. Once written, the scroll must then be returned inside of the golem, and only then will it acknowledge its new master. When ownership of the golem is contested or when the scroll is removed, the golem is incapacitated. Instead of blood, the golem leaves behind bits of clay when it's damaged. So, from that alone, we see a very clear misunderstanding. You don't write your own name on the scroll of used to bring the golem to life. That's just not what happens there. Um, it is arrogant to replace the name of God, which is what gives the creative force to the golem, which is what brings it to life, to remove, the, or not even include the name of God, but to include your own name instead. 
There is also the problem of this idea of taking ownership because someone random wrote their name, which goes directly against the Jewish idea that non-Jews would not be able to create golems. It is a Jewish creation through Jewish covenant with God. So it is in many ways completely incorrect. However, I have a huge problem with the rest of the storyline surrounding this golem, and you'll hear why. In this story, the golem was created in 1944 and is used to fight against the Tutu society. Over the next 70 years, the golem falls under various commands of Judah Initiative members, eventually ending up with Rabbi Isaac Bass, who is the last survivor. When he dies, his grandson Aaron is supposed to take the control, but he doesn't want to. In fact, Aaron cares so little about being Jewish and Judaism and the golem that he smokes the instruction manual for how to take care of the golem and, con- and control it. He... Again, he smokes the instruction manual. After his grandfather's death, he works out an argument, with, uh, an arrangement with Sam and Dean to store the golem in a bunker. But of course, at that time, they come in contact with the Two Society, and Aaron is unable to control the golem and protect them. Now, this is where I personally believe the most egregious part of the storyline happens. Eckhart, remember the Nazi leader of the Two Society? Then explains to Aaron, explains to Aaron, the, the, the grandson of this rabbi, how to control the golem. Why would a Nazi Farkish occultist know how to cre- control a golem? Why would that be the storyline? How would Eckhart even know how to control a golem? Uh, which is a Jewish creature created with Jewish magic. Having a Nazi occultist, who again is not only intent on um, horrific uh, magical goals, but is again a Nazi. Having a Nazi occultist explain to a Jew how to perform their own magic feels so unbelievably offensive to me. I don't know if I have the words yet to describe it. In the end, Aaron does, t- you know, dies t- decides to be a Judah member and gets control of the golem and, you know, Eckhart is killed, etc. But this entire storyline made me feel sick. Uh, it's just an example of how not everyone telling your story is good. Not every representation is good. Um, there are just, you know, these are just a few mentions of the Golem, so we can move on, but there are many more that I won't go into. Some people suggested I look into X-Files and Soul Eater as some other ones, but again, I cannot go into all of them. But you know what we can go into? The spiritual interpretations of Golem. So there are other definitions and interpretations of the Golem, and many of them, their rituals of creation, did not serve the inherent prote- purpose of protection, but they were merely a byproduct of a set of rituals in a order to achieve new mystical heights. And this concept is especially espoused by Gershom Shalom, who's one of the most uh, forefront scholars of Kabbalah. To quote from the book Gala by Moshe Edel, the study of the book of Yetzirah was considered successful when the mystic attained the vision of the Gollum, who is connected with a specific ritual of remarkably ecstatic character. In his essay, Tradition and New Creation in the Ritual of the Kabbalists, he preferred two foci for the Gollum ritual. The oldest instructions for making a golem must be regarded as a theurgical ritual in which the adept becomes aware of wielding a certain creative power. These specifications for making of the golem are a description of precise ritual calculated to induce a very definite vision, namely a vision of the creature animation of the golem. 
And this is a spiritual experience. You don't need to create the golem to have a golem. The golem is a byproduct of reaching a certain level of magical power and of mysticism, mystical connection um, and divine animation. And so this is a spiritual experience that is still sought after to this day. And it doesn't have to be the creation of a physical golem, but the spiritual viewing of a golem after massive um, and I, I mean very massive years of study of Seferiat-Sirin. So I think that's another aspect that we don't talk about nearly as much because it's not, for many people, nearly as fun. People love the idea of creating a golem and bringing it to life, but studying for a really long time and then doing a lot of you know mystical meditations and specific rituals in order to attain a vision of the golem is not necessarily as funky fresh, as, as the kids put it. And with that, I am closing the book on the Golem for now. We have discussed many different parts, but I'm sure that I've forgotten many. So please, please make sure to let me know if you think there's anything important that I've forgotten. Uh, before we get to sourcing, as always, I want to say thank you to someone who left a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Rose and B, who left a really nice comment. I promise I read every single one of your comments. The reviews are so massively helpful, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Since I know the vast majority of you listen on Spotify, you can rate there. If you're an Apple Podcast viewer, even a three-word review is very, very helpful. Subscribes and downloads are also great for boosting the podcast, so make sure you do so. You can follow me on all your favorite pl- podcast platforms. And if you want to uh, stay up to date with me, you can on my Instagram, at Jewitches, my Twitter, at the Jewitches, or sign up on my website, jewitches.com. So now let's get into sourcing. We have Gollum by Moshe Adel, the Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism, My Jewish Learning, the entry on the Gollum, the Jewish Encyclopedia, the Gollum entry, sdjjewishworld.com, does can, may a golem count towards a minion, D&D Beyond, Flesh Golem, supernatural.fandom.com, golem, uh, Bulbapedia, golem. We also have... We have kosher.com regarding clay, and then the Gollum Redox from Prague to post-Holocaust fiction by Elizabeth R. Ray, as well as the Atlanta Jewish Times, written by Alice H. Lippis and published in 2020. We also have the Wikipedia page for Avracadavra, as well as encyclopedia.com, etymology online, and the Oxford English Dictionary. Thank you all so much for listening, and I will see you all very soon. Bye-bye.